As we continue our journey through uh, the book of Acts, we come to a passage this morning that speaks of conversion. Um, conversion, of course, is somewhat, somewhat of an of an older term and maybe an, an outdated term. Um, that's probably to our detriment that that we're losing that part of our of our Christian language. Some let me just say some parts of the Christian language I think kind of need to go, but there are other parts and terms that I think it's important that we uh, keep around. And, and conversion is this term that refers to a person's salvation experience as it relates to his or her personal encounter with Jesus Christ. Uh, it's a way of describing how a person meets Christ, is saved by Christ, and begins to live in obedience to Christ. And this morning, God has set before us the conversion story of a man named Saul. Now, we'd be hard-pressed to, uh, to find just one word to to adequately and accurately uh, describe what took place at Saul's conversion. We could use the word powerful uh, because it certainly is a powerful account and because the power of the resurrected Jesus is on full display. Uh, we could also choose the word transformative. Because what happened that day in, in that encounter with Jesus completely changed the course of Saul's life. Completely. And also changed the lives of countless others to follow. We could choose the word surprising. Because anyone who knew Saul at that time knew just how vehement he was in his disapproval of the Christian way and of his uh, hostility toward those who followed the way. All these words, and there are many, many more, all these words are appropriate. They all apply. But I've chosen this morning the word grace. Grace is a very common word in Christian circles, uh, so common that sometimes we sadly forget its meaning and impact. Hardly a day goes by, certainly not a Sunday, when we don't talk of grace, sing of grace, and read about grace in our Bibles. God's grace is central to our Christian experience, and it is absolutely vital to life. So as we journey through this story this morning, I just want us to return to grace. To this foundational, fundamental reality of God's incredible work in your life. I want us to see ourselves in this text, first in the conversion of Saul, and then in the response of another man named Ananias. For by his amazing grace, 
we learn that God still reaches even the most improbable. And he still calls even the most reluctant to participate with him in his gracious redemptive plan. And so let's read this morning Acts chapter 9, verses 1 through 19. It says, But Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Now as he went on his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him. And falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, Who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and enter the city, and you will be told what you are to do. And the men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice, but seeing no one. Saul rose from the ground, and although his eyes were opened, he saw nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. And for three days he was without sight, and neither ate nor drank. Now there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias. And the Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias. And he said, Here I am, Lord. And the Lord said to him, Rise, and go to the street called Straight, and at the house of Judas look for a man of Tarsus named Saul, for behold, he is praying. And he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias come in and lay his hands on him so that he might regain his sight. But Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard from many about this man, how much evil he has done to your saints at Jerusalem, and here he has authority from the chief priests to bind all who call on your name. But the Lord said to him, Go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel, for I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. So Ananias departed and entered the house, and laying his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road by which you came, has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately something like scales fell from his eyes, and he regained his sight. Then he rose and was baptized, and taking food. He was strengthened. Let's pray. Father, I want to thank you for our time together this morning in your word. And I'm thankful, God, for just the immense provision, the, the wonderful gift your word is to us. It is a reflection of your heart. Um, and how, how providential of you, how kind of you, really, to, to inspire this man, Luke, to record 
um, the events we see here in the book of Acts. That we may remember them and learn from them and ultimately be changed by them as the Spirit of God who spoke them to Luke so many years ago as he would still speak them to us afresh this morning. So we come to you with open minds and with open hearts, wanting to receive all you have for us today. May your divine grace pour forth in great abundance upon each soul. And we ask this through Jesus. Amen. Just a brief recap. Whereas chapters 7 and 8 were devoted to Stephen and Philip and to their respective roles in propelling the gospel out from Jerusalem, chapter 9 tells the story of Saul of Tarsus. Saul, who eventually, uh, who eventually became the Apostle Paul, then took the message of Jesus even further uh, to the far corners of the mighty Roman Empire. In fact, more than half of the book of Acts, beginning with chapter 13, uh, is devoted to the missionary endeavors of this man. Uh, and isn't it just like God that the most notable convert to Christianity in the book of Acts was also the most improbable? Who but God could have possibly imagined this, much less orchestrated it? And so in this passage, uh, we read of Saul's fierce opposition to the Christian church, uh, fierce opposition of the Christian church, and then of his unexpected and ultimately world-changing encounter with Jesus Christ. It begins, but Saul, but Saul, but Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters uh, to the synagogues at Damascus so that if he found any belonging to the way, that is, the way of Jesus, if he found anyone who was walking in the way of Jesus, whether man or woman, he would bring them bound to Jerusalem. And with this word, but, Luke, I think, is shifting from Philip's successful gospel-advancing endeavors in chapter 8 to Saul's uh, opposition of the gospel in chapter 9. It seems that Luke doesn't want us to miss the fact, hear this church, that fruitful ministry and fierce opposition often occur at the same time. In other words, church, we mustn't assume that the, that the presence of opposition signals a lack of gospel success. Conversely, we mustn't assume that the lack of opposition means success. In fact, history suggests that the church's witness is strongest and its advance is steadiest when occurring during times of resistance. 
Because it's during those times when, when cultural Christianity falls by the wayside, thankfully, and true followers of Christ stand out among the masses. In fact, that's one reason why I believe that we are poised that the church in America is poised for meaningful ministry today because in our post-Christian culture, we have tremendous opportunity to stand out like city on a hill or lights in the darkness. One wonders what drove Saul's persecution of the church. Was it that he uh, likened Christianity to a narrow and, and false religion like many do today? Was it that Christians themselves just posed a threat to, to the status quo of Jewish society? Was he fighting somewhat of a holy war? Uh, much like ISIS is today. Trying to rid the world of every supposed infidel. Whatever the case, we know that Saul was all in when it came to persecuting the church. The words uh, breathing threats and murder are comparable to Psalm 27 when David spoke of his enemies rising in violence against him. Uh, just in our last chapter in Luke, or in Acts chapter 8, verse 3, Luke describes Saul as ravaging the church. And the language there is typically used of a wild beast feeding upon its prey. So it seems we're to see Saul at this point as we might picture a wild animal on the prowl. He's hunting, he's tracking, he's stalking. He's maybe, maybe he's, he's like a wolf, for example, uh, just baring his teeth, snorting and growling and threatening to pounce. And now he's equipped with letters of authority from the high priest himself. Arrest warrants, basically, or extradition, extradition papers. Saul is just continuing his methodical Gestapo-like rampage against the church. He's heading to Damascus, a journey of about 150 miles north and, and to the east of Jerusalem, one that would have taken about a week or so to complete. And as he approaches Damascus, there comes a sudden light from heaven that both blinded him and knocked him to the ground. And falling to the ground, verse 4, the, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, Who are you, Lord? And the voice said, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. Now, before we, before we continue to explore that conversation, I want to pause here. I think it's important to pause here to say something about conversion. Saul's conversion experience was obviously spectacular in every way, right? Right? I mean, a flood of light from heaven beamed down upon him. 
and the audible divine voice of Jesus was heard speaking to him. A conversation was had between them, at least a few sentences in length. I think, I think, I can safely assume that none of us in this room have had an experience quite like this. And I want to say that that is perfectly, perfectly okay. How many times have you heard someone downplay or discount their own unique encounter with Christ because in their estimation it wasn't as spectacular as another's? Maybe you've done that. Maybe you've played a game I like to call Top the Testimony. thinking that you needed a spectacular story to tell, and because you assumed you didn't have anything impressive to say with which to wow people, you stayed quiet, and silently you even questioned whether your conversion was really worth sharing at all. I want you to hear me on this. If you have come into a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ and have thus been spiritually reborn by the Spirit of God Himself, then you have experienced as much a miracle as Saul did or anyone else in human history. You need to know that. The point of Saul's story here is not that this is what true conversion entails, it's not about lights and voices from heaven. The point of this encounter is that God can reach even the most unlikely person, the most improbable candidate, and transform his or her life forever. And let's be honest. Weren't we all unlikely and improbable candidates? Bible says you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ, by grace, you have been saved. That which is so evident in Saul's story and so similar to ours is that God took the initiative to reach into our lives and unexpectedly confront us with grace. Salvation is by His grace, not anything we bring to the table for what did Saul have to offer Christ? Saul was persecuting God's church. He was hunting down God's redeemed people and throwing them in prison, breathing murderous threats against them. Saul's conversion, therefore, just like yours, owes solely to the saving grace of God in Christ. Saul was not looking for Jesus. 
But obviously, Jesus found him. Saul. Saul, why are you persecuting me? And instinctively, and for obvious reasons, I mean, there's a light from heaven, and there's a voice from heaven. So instinctively, Saul knew that, he was, that what he was experiencing in that moment was not from man, but from God. Who are you, Lord? I am Jesus. I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. And with that statement, we see again just how closely Jesus identifies with us. You know, as far as he knew, Saul wasn't persecuting Jesus. Who knows if he ever even saw or met Jesus prior to this. Saul was persecuting those who kept talking about Jesus, who were following Jesus, and yet because Jesus so closely identifies with us, he took it personally. He takes the welfare of his people seriously, so seriously that to persecute them is to persecute him, like a good friend who grieves when his friend is grieving or a parent who is appropriately angered and protective when their child is threatened, that's how Jesus is toward us, for whom he has given everything to rescue and redeem and restore to God. By his incarnation and birth, he identified with us and our humanity. Throughout his life, he walked uh, he walked in, among us and served us and, and taught us the ways of God. In death, he, he bore all our sins to bring us to God. In rising from the dead, he paved the way to new life. And even now, though ascended to heaven, he has promised to never leave or forsake us. And he has said that he will return for us. He will come again to right every wrong and fully reveal God's eternal plan to restore all things. Are you with me, church? I love how the prophet Zechariah talks about this about how God cares for us in this way when he says to Judah that he who touches you, in other words, he who comes against you, he who touches you touches the apple of God's eye. The prophet Isaiah said similarly of the Lord and his love for the house of Israel that in all their affliction he was afflicted. I don't claim to know, nor could I possibly understand all the hardships you've faced in life, or even those you're facing today, or certainly not those you'll face in the future, but this much is certain, that Jesus Christ, the sovereign Lord of the entire universe, is with you and forever for you, and when you suffer, He feels it too. I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. And with that, heaven was touching earth. It meant that Jesus was alive, that indeed he had died and rose again, just as he said he would. 
It meant that his claims to deity are true, that he is God's divine son and our perfect savior. It meant hope. Though Saul probably thought that his life was over, that Jesus was going to end him right then and there, and he instead found hope as never before. Saul seemed like the most improbable convert to Christianity uh, around, but with God, there is hope. And, and as he would, as Saul would later write to the Romans, to the church at Romans, he would say, in this hope, we were saved. And hope implies that his conversion experience was not confined to that singular moment only. Though the light shone suddenly and though Jesus spoke audibly, uh, he had been pursuing Saul all along. All the prior events in Saul's life led to that specific moment. We usually don't notice that as those events are unfolding in real time. But isn't it true that when we look back in retrospect, we can see how God was working in our lives all along hope C.S. Lewis talks about this in his autobiography Surprised by Joy you'll remember that that, uh, Lewis was an atheist who talked openly about wanting nothing to do with God wanting to avoid God as much as possible and yet There came a point in Lewis's life when he knew he was fighting a losing battle. That God was overtaking him and that Lewis couldn't deny the truth any longer. And when describing that experience, as as only Lewis can, he, he, he likened that experience. He likened God to the great angler or the great fisherman who was just playing his fish. To, to a cat chasing a mouse, to a pack of hounds closing in on a fox. And then, and then finally Lewis said that, that God is like a divine chess master who just maneuvers his opponent across the board until finally that opponent concedes checkmate. When I was reading that... Uh, when I was reading that about Lewis, I just I chuckled a little bit because even just yesterday in 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 uh, in a chess game I'm enjoying with a friend of mine here in the church, Jeremy Gayton, I had to concede checkmate. <laughs> but the point is, church, is there are people in your life today who do not know the Lord. They are not walking with God. They may be adamantly opposed to God. I have a picture on my desk of someone I love and care about who is unrelentingly opposed to Christ and the Christian way. But Saul's conversion and stories like C.S. Lewis's give us hope. 
For by these stories we are reminded of God's steadfast love and his continual pursuit of the lost and his power to save even the most unlikely of persons. So Saul is led into Damascus by the hand of those who are traveling with him. Imagine what that must have been for them, what they must have been thinking. Saul set out from Jerusalem full of rage and pride, and yet he entered Damascus humbled and without sight. And there he prayed and he waited on God for what was supposed to happen next. And it's at this point where we're introduced to a man named Ananias. Church, are you with me this morning? I'm thinking maybe you got woken up in the middle of the night. (laughs) Maybe your sleep cycles are thrown off too. And we're told that Ananias was a follower of Jesus who apparently lived in Damascus And during this three-day period in which Saul was praying and apparently fasting, the Lord spoke to Ananias in a vision, saying, Rise and go to the street called Straight, and at the house of Judas look for a man of Tarsus named Saul, for behold, he is praying, and he has seen in a vision that you, Ananias, you you will come and lay hands on him that he might regain his sight. And I, and I love this exchange because at first, Ananias is all ears. Like when God first called his name, it was, here I am, Lord. Said with enthusiasm and this sense of anticipation. But as soon as he heard what it was that God wanted him to do, he begins to backpedal. And he's not so sure in that moment, whereas Saul is among the most improbable, Ananias is among the most reluctant. And just as we see ourselves in Saul, do we not also see ourselves in Ananias? Absolutely. And so he says, Lord... Verse 13, Lord, um, I've heard, I've heard about this man. um, And he's done a lot of evil to your saints at Jerusalem. And now he has authority from the chief priests to bind anyone and everyone who calls on your name. So Ananias is looking to reason himself out of this assignment, right? He's, he's building his case, and he's looking to reason himself out of this assignment by telling the Lord just how dangerous Saul is. This, the same Lord who just totally disarmed Saul, Ananias, is now telling him, uh, God, God, this man is very dangerous. And I'm sure God really appreciated that, I'm sure God was very, very thankful for that piece of intel on Saul of Tarsus. And then uh, we laugh because it is silly. And I just wonder how silly must it seem when we try to reason our way out of the various assignments God sends in our direction.
this isn't uncommon, of course. Moses, when he was called by God to return to Egypt to deliver the Israelites from Egyptian oppression, Moses tried to get out of it by, writing, uh, by offering reason upon reason as to why he wasn't the right man for the job. Not me. Jeremiah, when God called him to be a prophet, these are the opening verses of Jeremiah, uh, Jeremiah just said, I'm too young, I'm too inexperienced, I'm unfit for the task. The prophet Jonah was called to Nineveh to, ur uh, to urge the, the despised Ninevites to repent and turn to the Lord, but he fled, remember, he fled in the exact opposite direction, wanting nothing to do with that assignment. Moses considered himself too inadequate. Jeremiah thought he was too young. Jonah was too angry. And here in Acts chapter 9, it wasn't, it wasn't inadequacy or youth or anger that plagued Ananias. It was fear. He simply feared for his safety. He knew who Saul was and what Saul was doing to followers of Jesus, and he wanted no part of it. And that's us. <laughs> that's us. I bet you can see yourself in these examples. I know I can see myself. Maybe your reluctance at times owes to a sense of inadequacy like Moses. Maybe like Jeremiah, you think you're too young or inexperienced. I won't know what to say. Maybe like Jonah, you're angry with the evil and the injustices you see around you and in your heart of hearts, you want God to bring justice to your enemies, not grace. Or maybe like Ananias, you're just afraid. We're just afraid of crossing paths with someone who opposes your beliefs and poses a threat. But God is not deterred by our excuses or reluctance. And aren't you thankful for that? I mean, thankfully, God doesn't give up on us even when we're ready to give up on ourselves. When God began his gracious work in your life, be assured he set out to perfect and complete it. He saves us and he sanctifies us and he sends us out to participate with him in what he is doing in the lives of others. Go, he said to Ananias. And then he said something that must have been so mind-blowing and so sweet 
at the same time, Jesus tells Ananias that he has chosen Saul and that Saul was to carry his name, the name of Jesus, to Jews and Gentiles alike and even to kings of the earth. In effect, Jesus met Ananias' fears by assuring him that he knew what he was doing, that he was in control, not Saul. Not Saul, that, that he had a plan of which Ananias knew nothing of, and yet graciously and unexpectedly uh, and undeservedly, Ananias was being invited into that plan which God was working to perfection. And the takeaway here is that our fears are calmed and assuaged when we remember that Jesus reigns, that he's in control. That greater is he who is in me than he who is in the world. And so Ananias left for Straight Street, and he entered the house of Judas, and there he found Saul, and laying his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road by which you came has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. I love how he called him brother. There's tenderness there. I love how he touched him because to touch someone, you've got to get close. I love how he spoke words of comfort to him and how he prayed on Saul's behalf for the filling of the Holy Spirit. I love it because Saul wasn't the only person in this account to experience God's amazing grace. The same grace that saved Saul, sanctified and strengthened Ananias. William Barclay calls Ananias one of the forgotten heroes of the Christian church. And I agree. In obedience, Ananias went to Saul and overcame his fear by trusting God. Through the laying on of his hands, he saw Saul's sight restored he witnessed Saul's infilling by the Holy Spirit. One would assume that it was Ananias who baptized Saul. And for the next few days, as it says in the verses that follow, that, that Ananias had a front row seat as Saul began proclaiming Jesus in the synagogues of Damascus. Ananias, the same man who shied away in reluctance, was used by God to reach a man who seemed most unlikely. And Saul, who once ravaged the church, was transformed by God into the most notable cross-cultural church-planting, missionary, pastor, theologian ever. And so, loved ones, do not miss or dismiss 
the amazing grace of God. Maybe you're like Saul or Ananias or a mix of both, depending on the situation. And yet still today, God reaches even the most improbable. Do you believe that? And He still calls even the most reluctant. Do you believe that? He reaches and He calls people to Himself to participate with Him and His gracious, redemptive work. Grace. That's the word I'd choose to describe this encounter. Just pure and simple grace. Do not miss or quickly dismiss God's gracious work in your life even today. Amen. You are a gracious God, kind beyond our wildest imagination, God. You pursued us. You found us. You saved us. You're sanctifying us day by day and every moment throughout the day. You call us. You send us out to be involved with you and what you're doing in the lives of people near and far. And so today, even now, will you please speak grace into every ear and impress your grace upon every heart and fill every soul with rivers of gracious living water. For your name's sake and for the good of every single person present. Amen.